The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. far from the front line. Its spectre carries with it doubts that we harbour within ourselves, the secrets we hide, and the true self we dare not show to the world. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and ex-schoolboy, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Our feature presentation is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, a 1983 war drama starring David Bowie, Ryuichi Sakamoto, Tom Conti, and Beat Takeshi Kitano. My guest is my good friend and literata Emmanuel Asque, who invited me to her Riverside apartment for a chat. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, for a context, I cycled here today, and it was pouring with rain, so I'm soaking wet. And also today's Armistice Day. Yes. Um, I did not observe the minute silence because I was asleep, but I feel that <laughs> by recording this podcast about the war, it's kind of making up for that a little, I hope. Yeah, completely. Very apt. Yeah. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Mm-hmm. So... What can you tell me about the film career of David Bowie? The film career? Yes. Uh, not much. I don't know much about his film career. Or actually, I don't know at all. Um, it, I think this is the only memory I have of him, is in that film, and that's it, really. You've never seen Labyrinth? Nope. Or um, The Man Who Fell to Earth? Nope. Uh, I can picture the poster. <laughs> the Prestige? Nope. Oh. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Normally I, I get an answer to questions like that rather than I don't know, but that's oh, okay. fine. Well, you've seen all of them, I presume, right? Well, they're quite famous films. Okay, sorry. Labyrinth is apparently quite a um, rite of passage for young girls. Because oh, wow. David Bowie is quite um, charismatic. Oh, do you think my life is not as good as it could have been then? I missed something? I'd say that you should probably see it. Uh, am I not a bit old? I'm not oh, I don't think you're ever too old. It's a Jim oh, okay. Henson film. It's fine. Uh, okay, all right. I'll, I'll give it a try, definitely. Um, I thought of covering Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence in the podcast because David Bowie's film career gets a lot of stick. He gets a lot of jokes made about his terrible choices in films and the terrible films. Mm-hmm. But I honestly don't think that's fair. He hasn't done that many films. He didn't do that many films. And the three that I named to you just now are all regarded as being very high quality. Okay. Even if they're maybe not widely seen, perhaps. But not this one? This one's kind of fallen through the cracks. Okay. Um, it has an odd pedigree in that it's a Japanese film made in English based on a novel by a South African mm-hmm. and filmed in Indonesia and New Zealand. <laughs> a bit odd. Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's a globalised film. Yeah. And... I also thought I like it when um, I get to see 
my own culture through the eyes of someone else, oh, through yeah. the eyes of someone outside it. So that's one of the reasons why I asked you to be in my, the Doctor Who podcast, because I oh, wanted yeah. uh, an outsider's view on something that's very quintessentially English. And here we have the Japanese point of view mm-hmm. on the British mindset for yeah. the war. So overall, what were your thoughts on the film? Um, overall, I was, I was quite surprised by the film. I, I didn't think it was going to be that quirky in some places. I thought, I mean, it had gravitas, definitely, and there were some serious thoughts, but equally, I think there were some scenes that were uh, meant to be intense, probably, and turned out to be a bit humorous. I mean, I'm not sure I saw okay. them that way. Okay. Um, I really didn't like the passage going back to Britain in his past. I thought that was... Uh, I, I, it threw me off. I really... Right. Um, I, I really did, be- also maybe because for the other character we didn't see his past at all, and then suddenly we're focusing on his on on, on uh, Jack's past. Yeah. Um, whereas he seems to be the main character suddenly, whereas from the beginning I thought that uh, Mr. Lawrence was the main character. Yeah. So it threw me off a bit, and also because of the change of scenery, the change of of light, and and the the light which was not so harsh. It felt a bit cotton wool. And then so, it just threw me off. I, I didn't like that part at all. I thought it maybe it could have been a bit shorter or talked about rather than shown, uh, right. seen on screen. I assume you didn't read the book. Nope. Okay. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite a strange book in how it's structured. It's structured in three um, pieces. It's effectively three short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is about... Um, Lawrence, years after the war, reminiscing about his relationship with Sergeant Hara. Mm-hmm. The second is Celia's story mm-hmm. of his background and the reason why he is the way he is. And the third story is about Lawrence's affair with the woman during the evacuation of Singapore. Okay. Which is boiled down to about a minute of screen yeah, time. Yeah, it's really, really brief. Because it's, t- it's a bit of character detail and it's otherwise totally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge chunk of that in the book. It's, it's a third of the book. Okay. And the whole thing is narrated years after the war when the narrator is visiting Lawrence for Christmas. Okay. And they talk about Sergeant Hara when they go for a walk on Christmas Eve. And then they read this letter that Celia's wrote on Christmas Day. And then that night there's a huge thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence tells the story of his affair. Okay. And the way it's been sort of restructured into the film, I think, shows that it's a little bit uneven in pacing mm, because, yeah, because it's from this, sort of, this odd structure. Yeah, I agree. I think it, that, that structural part of going back in the past, suddenly focusing on Jack, I didn't buy into it at all. And I'm surprised, actually, they're telling me that the, the third, a third part of the book is, is about that woman, yeah. about the relationship, sorry, of the Singapore woman um, with Mr. Lawrence. I... It's super brief in the film, and I accepted it as it is. Yeah, there, there, there doesn't really need to be much more detail than that. No, and, and I thought that Jack Celia's story was going to be similar. You know, they, they can see their end coming, they're scared, they're reminiscing something um, really strong for them that they want to keep with them until the end. And Jack's story goes on forever, <laughs> I thought. I think because it has a bigger impact on Jack's behaviour as a whole, and it's it's the keystone to the character because he's he's portrayed as such a mystery, this very mm-hmm. strange, very serene 
soldier who even though he's in a Japanese prisoner of war camp and he's being beaten and tortured he just has this central steel rod that won't bend or break and that's why Yonoi is so attracted to him because mm. he he sees something of himself in yeah, him yeah very fact, Japanese yeah but I I don't know I thought he just wants to in a way beat himself to death by by trying to because he's he feels so guilty about what happens to his brother he feels uh, he doesn't care what happens to him as long as he's able to try and do what he should have done before yeah he's got regrets yeah to try to try and atone for it mm. i yeah before i think we all just sort of say who the characters are and what the plot is really yes but um there's a point i can't remember if it's in the film but it's definitely in the book where hara is talking to lawrence about how he regards himself as already being dead that he th- okay. that he thinks himself as having died the day he left his village to go and fight in the war okay. and every day he's had since then it's only I've, in the book right or it's definitely in the book. I, I'm not sure mm. if it's in the film. That, yeah, that was the day he was, he had a funeral. There was everything like that, and it's just yeah, he's just been carrying on until his body dies, mm-hmm. but his spirit has already been laid to rest. And it's I think the same with Sellers, that he knows that he's going to die, and he's absolutely fine with that because he knows he's going to do it for a good reason, whatever that might mm-hmm. be. So that is why he's so calm and relaxed and focused because he knows that whatever happens he's ready for it mm-hmm. yeah and that, and that again that's the that's the the thing that makes him sort of very japanese in his outlook yeah completely i think you can see a lot of jack in in the japanese soldiers definitely in yonoi particularly yeah because yonoi aspires to be this samurai-like figure mm-hmm. um and demands this uh honor and and dignity from his um from his prisoners even though they're in a terrible condition and they're all ill and everything mm. like that and the, the the figure i mean their faces they're not necessarily similar but they're very androgynous both of them yes exactly so there's there's a reflection and so towards the end when he goes to give him the kiss of death in a way yes it's as if they're they're not one but um it it's not surprising. That scene is not surprising at all, even though it's like the pinnacle of the film. Um, it's as if Celia's is acting out what Yonoi would want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And jokingly, earlier on in the film, um, Lawrence is telling him, well, I think he's got something for you. And uh, mm. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's like two halves of one soul, in a exactly, way. Exactly, yes. It's not just attraction. It's not no. It's not any kind of uh, romantic or no. physical. Feeling. Although the, I think there's an element of that definitely, and that's something that Yonoi is denying to himself. Mm. But there is something much more. It's more profound, isn't yeah. it? It's not futile. It's not at some point as well in the film they say when men are together for that long, you know, they develop something more than just friendship. Yes. But in that case, it's not. It's much more than more than just friendship it's it goes to an extreme length the relationship between jack and 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 you is it yonoi yeah it's uh, it's very intense mm. and that that kiss of death was not yeah it wasn't surprising it felt that was needed that physical contact between the two of them yes and and they so look alike in some sense 
But uh, yeah, I think the casting was great. <laughs> I've my mind of, of has gone completely blank regarding the name of the actor who plays Yonoi. Uh, Sakamoto. Ryuchi Sakamoto. Um, he's a he. He is, in a sense, the Japanese David Bowie. He's oh, yeah. a, a big rock star who then moved into acting. Ah. And he also wrote the music for the film. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I re- funnily enough, I knew the score. Yeah. Before then knowing the film, before no- when knowing exactly the extent of the film. The theme music was released as a single and was a big hit. Mm. It is really good. And it made me think of, when I saw Takeshi Kitano in the film, as well, I was like, oh my god, this is like Takeshi Kitano's film music. It's the same. I don't know if it's very Japanese or maybe... I Japanese, think it is, but... yeah. I think, I think quite culturally, mm. that sound... I mean, I don't know a lot of Japanese films. That's probably why it's now narrows down in a way. <laughs> well, I'm trying to cover more sort of uh, foreign films. Okay. And uh, so I'm cheating by doing one that's in English. <laughs> um, the basic outline of the story is that it's set in a, a Japanese prisoner of war camp during the Second World War, somewhere in Indonesia. It's in Java? Java. I think yes. it says Java on the screen at the beginning. Yes. And um, the main liaison between the prisoners and the captors is Major John Lawrence who has lived, he lived many years in Japan he's fluent in Japanese and he's, he's just trying to keep the peace, he's just trying to stop anything bad from happening at any time the sergeant of the guards is Hara who is very much downplayed from the book, in the book he's a very kind of Jekyll and Hyde character he can be, he's, it's said outright that he's beaten prisoners to death you can see that in the film, can't you? That he's very... You can see that there's something very nasty there. Mm. But he's also... He, he's, not a, he's not a thug, because he can sit down and just talk with Lawrence mm. about their cultural differences and still be very dismissive of the West, but just conversationally. And he's clearly an intelligent man. Mm-hmm. And the commandant of the camp is Yonoi, who is this very rigid, disciplined sort of would-be latter-day samurai and there's an influence during the story that he was part of a failed coup um, and he bears some great guilt for that uh, and then during the story Jack Selliers comes to the camp and he's an old uh, comrade-in-arms of Lawrence and he is very much like Yonoi, this very calm centred individual um, who immediately attracts Yonoi's attention and then becomes almost like a battle of wills between the two of them. But it's really strange how Yonoi desperately wants to save him at the beginning and nurture him and yes. visits him at night. He's so fascinated by that man. And you think, at, at the very beginning, I remember wondering why he wanted desperately to, to save that man and to make him healthy again and to make him in charge of... The, the prisoner of um, the prisoner's compound. Yes. Um, how could he have decided that this man was going to be pretty much the mirror of himself? I think that well, he'd already um, been involved in Celia's trial. But how could he have decided that quickly? I don't know. I could I could see I could see the fascination straight away, very quickly in the in the trial. But I that you know in the beginning when I said that this was. Some parts I didn't buy into it, and I thought they were a bit funny. The trial at the beginning, I thought it it was just not right. I I I thought it was a bit humorous, um, for some reason. The way it's um, 
obviously a kind of kangaroo court, that it's just the, the formality of a trial they're going to shoot and whatever happens. Mm. But I, maybe the way the characters were playing or um, the way the characters appear um, and the first, the fact that we see this, the first time we see David Bowie, it's that massive close-up of his face. And I, I thought that was just a bit funny. <laughs> um, I didn't, you know, I, maybe I wanted a bit more movement. Maybe I wanted to to be... To, to see the dynamic between the characters before being a massive before seeing that massive close up um, what I, the only part I liked in that scene is when the sentence is read out loud and you can see that you know he doesn't care at all he's just so focused on that blonde figure in front of him right um, and I think that's when the attraction happens but for me it's so, so short I'm thinking, how come you want that guy to be in charge of your prisoners? I don't know. I was a bit... Nah. Maybe the book <laughs> describes it a bit better, definitely, that, that initial attraction. I'm trying to... Because it's described from Celia's point of view. Okay. Um, and Celia's talks in sort of more detail about himself. He still leaves a, sort of a bit of that, that mystery about that, that steel inside him. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the background's totally different because it's, he's explicitly said to be South African, mm-hmm. whereas in the film he's English. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, as you said, when the sentence is read out and Celia's is... He, he doesn't even respond because he's, he's prepared to go through with whatever it is that mm-hmm. he's going to do. And you're not, that captures your noise attention. That he's not like one of these weak Western pigs who will just <laughs> start snivelling and crying. No, he's just going to face it because that's what's going to happen. But he doesn't know the story behind Celia's past. So no. You just see that straight character. Um, but yeah, I mean, that scene was a bit... Mm, not my favourite. <laughs> That's okay. The rest of the film was good. Um, they fake his execution as well. Oh, God, yeah. I didn't really... I mean, I, I didn't expect that. For some reason, I thought that something would have stopped before the firing of the guns. I don't know. I was like, oh my God. Save him. Don't <laughs> let him die now. There's still some time remaining in the film. Surely he's not going to die now. Um, and then when they fire the gun, I, I really thought that this was the end of the character in the film. Um, I was surprised actually that they were they would go to the extent of putting him, you know, in the shackles and and firing the guns to scare him and to see the reaction. Well, the. The Japanese military at the time was noted for its cruelty towards its prisoners, okay. so it doesn't really surprise me at all. Okay. It does seem a little elaborate, because normally they just like lock you in a box and leave you in the sun for a week. Oh, that last scene completely. It was terrible. Yeah, that apparently... Uh, a lot of the prisoner of war material uh, is based on things that the author observed himself, because okay. he, he was a prisoner of war. And the way Celius died, he actually saw happen to someone. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, it's so so cruel, and the fact that you've got the rest of the prisoners walking in front of him and, yeah. you know, saluting him, it's just, psychologically, it's terrible. Not just physically, yeah. but also psychologically. The fact that you're just removed from your group and put there on display. Yes. Um, they sing The Lord is My Shepherd. At the end, don't I they? can't remember. Sorry, I'm not versed into British. Um, oh, the, the traditional... hymn. The, but the hymn that they sent, okay. <laughs> um, but that's very much um, 
it's a funeral hymn. Oh, okay. And they're, they're singing in honour of Celia's, and they're sort mm-hmm. of acknowledging his sacrifice in saving all their lives by mm. giving up his own. And it's, I think, a very moving moment because the, the prisoners as a whole are kind of a, a faceless mass for most of the movie. You see them in the background, and, mm-hmm. and there's only a couple yeah, who right. actually have much of a personality, particularly the, um, the commanding officer of the prisoners, whose name I've forgotten. Uh, Hicksley. Hicksley. He's kind of a dick. Oh, yeah, but I, I, that's what I liked in the... F- well, not him as a character, but the fact that each commander-to-be or, or would, would want to be um, successively, they're really different characters. And that, that makes it really rich. Like, you, you were describing Higsley as really like a, a Western pig, probably, right? Yeah. He would be completely despised by the Japanese. And then you've got Celius, just a Japanese, but from <laughs> with blonde hair. Yeah, he's he's someone who's kind of fallen into that way of thinking through circumstance. Mm-hmm. And then you, you've got Lawrence, who's a compromise between the two. Yeah. And trying to make things work for him, but for the other prisoners as well. Um, taking beatings from Sergeant Hara, um, but on the other hand, smiling afterwards. You know, having a conversation with with the same surgeon who who beat him, yeah. um, and I thought the three main commanders were interesting in their own way, and it was good to have a balance and and the difference of characters. But you could see the conflict, that's for sure, between the three. Yeah. Um, maybe not so much between Lawrence and and Celius, but uh, no. But in their attitude, definitely. But yeah. Because I mean, because the two of them are old friends and they know each other mm-hmm. well so even though there is certainly severe difference of opinion between them it's still very civil because they know that they can't fight amongst themselves mm-hmm. because for survival purposes for survival yeah. purposes if, if for no other reason and mm. it's it's much more powerful to present a united front mm. but Higsley I don't mm, yeah he's very concerned about his own position oh completely seemingly I think to the detriment of his troops mm-hmm. yeah because I think Lawrence would be the best person to be in charge because he's he, he knows Japanese culture he's respectful of it but he also knows how far he can go how far mm-hmm. he can push he seemingly has the, the natural respect of all the other men and he's fluent in Japanese mm. he's the obvious person to be in charge I think Hicksley's only he's very charge. diplomatic yeah Whereas Higsley is more... Higsley just outranks him and that's it. That's the only reason, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I like the way they they all have their little scarves, you know, in the prisoner of war camp. Just in case. They all wear little scarves. Didn't you notice? No. <laughs> they, they wear like these mini scarves. Oh, the little, the little neckerchief. Yeah. I think that might be part of the uniform. Oh, okay. I thought it was like very presentable, even a prisoner. <laughs> well, they yeah, they kind of still have to be... When they're, like when they're parading at the end of the film, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, that was <laughs> it was a time where British army uniform included shorts, <laughs> just in case. Just well, for for and you're in Java. It was, it was tropical kit. Yeah. Early on in the film, I think it's like right at the start, Lawrence is dragged out of bed because um, one of the Korean guards is going to be beheaded after he was found having sex with one of the prisoners. That scene is super har- uh, harrowing for me. The harakiri. It was just really hard to watch. That sequence is, I think, very well handled. The director, Nagasi Oshima, um, is very careful, I think, to avoid showing anything 
too nasty. We get a very clear sense of what's happening. But they say, well, you don't need to see the, the blood. You don't need to see the knife going in. All you need to know is what's happening. But still, it's very powerful. Yes. I, I found it really hard because you could see that that person is just alone. The way um, the director chose to film them, because there are two instances of, of that in the film. Yes. And every time the character is just on their own in the scene, there's nothing else. And you can you can compare that to the prisoners of war, as you were saying earlier on, who are a pack. They're a group. Um, and these Japanese soldiers committing suicide, they're just on their own. So it's not just the fact that you don't see the blood, it's the fact that you see these men just completely alone. But, nonetheless, the pressure of the group made them you know, commit yes. suicide. Um, and it feels like it's they are the one committing it, but you know they're still pressured from society to yeah. to commit that. It's that that overwhelming sense of honor that you're being forced to pursue hmm. that is ultimately so destructive. And it looks like it's an individual choice, but it's not. No, it never is. I think in the film. But because they're filmed on their own and they look so alone. Which is, you know, super sad, yeah. <laughs> very sad in a way. You know that you you know that it's not their own decision. It's I think it's clever how it's framed as well because um, Harakiri was a two person job. You, there was a second person always who would behead. Cut the head, yeah. yeah. So that I mean, it's but they're behind them. Mm. So that it, it it feels like they're on their own because they can't see anyone. But you don't Close see them. them. I mean, there are some scenes where you don't see them. It's just the guy putting yeah. the knife in in their stomach, and it's, it was just really hard. The first time I could, I, just, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. I just didn't like it. Um, I found it. I didn't want to witness that. <laughs> I know it's a film, but still, it's yeah. It's a very, it's a very emotional moment. Mm. It's it, it feels like you shouldn't be privy to this. This, yeah. this is too private. Mm-hmm. But the the issue of sexuality doesn't come up at all in the book. Okay. The book is very much of when it was published, I think, in the fifties. Yeah. And all of that is brought in for the film. Okay. With Oshima saying, "Yep, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna." Well, deal with I that guess now. the law had changed, so you probably were allowed to talk about that and without well, being you... pursued. <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose so, because uh, as late as, I think it was the early 60s, that Lady Chatterley's Lover was still illegal in the UK. Oh, wow, I yeah. don't know. There was a famous trial about whether or not it was obscene in the 60s. Oh, it was such a boring book, I didn't even finish it. Well, it's because it's about sex. Oh, no, it's boring. And it's about adultery. <laughs> and there was there was a famous trial, and the, the, the judge supposedly said in his summing up, I think it was the judge, it may have been the prosecutor, um, is this the sort of book you would want lying around your house? Is this the kind of thing you would want your servants to read? <laughs> and, and it was laughter because he was so out of touch. And then it was it, it was possible. No, this is fine. There's you know nobody's got no, servants no, anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this, 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 this is fine to publish. It's not obscene. And yeah. people read it. I thought, oh, actually, this is quite dull. <laughs> but the, but the, the point oh, was disappointing. But the point was that that was the end of that level of censorship mm-hmm. I mean even until the, I think it was the end of the 50s um, any play that was staged in the UK had to have government approval oh wow okay I guess after the war people were careful about what was 
being, you know, given to the public. But this has lasted for hundreds of years. Mm. Um, when was the book written, did you say, in the 50s? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, certainly before you know, permissiveness, mm-hmm. before um, homosexuality was legalised, okay. partially legalised. Um, but the fact the film is so explicit about it, that, mm-hmm. that it is that you have a, this scene of the consequences of, of two men having sex, that yeah. Yunoi's attraction to Celia's is certainly sexual in a sense. Um, it's, it's, it's doing things and it's saying things that I think the author wanted to do. Okay. Because on the DVD, uh, there's a, a making of documentary, mm-hmm. and they interview Lawrence van der Post, and he's very happy with the film. He's really oh, pleased how okay. it's done. And it's just like 80-year-old man. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, old. there was definitely something in the book that he didn't dare saying out loud yeah. that the film picked upon and, and made it realistic in a way. Yeah. It was also funny that he said he had no idea who David Bowie was. Oh, really? <laughs> he, was, he was very pleased with his performance. He's a very fine actor. I, okay. Yeah, okay. My, my, my daughter said that he's very well known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, your daughter says that and a bit more. <laughs> No, it's, it is explicit, but it's not too... It, it doesn't take centre stage either, and it's not... They don't claim to, um, you know, to be on the homosexual side or to be against, or... It's just part of so the this, story. This is something that's happening. Exactly, yeah. And, um, I mean, the the rights and wrongs of Yunoi's attraction, it's never, it's never any judgment on it. And there isn't, no. there isn't in the book either. It's just, this is something, this is part of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Oshima was well known as being quite relaxed about such things. One of his previous films, In the Realm of the Senses, was banned in the UK for quite a long time oh, because wow. it was very explicit sex in it. Oh, okay. Um, so that was clearly, he was fine with that. Yeah. Yunoi <laughs> um, is uh, pushing Hicksley to name any armourers or any armoury specialists in the camp so that they will assist the Japanese war effort. Mm-hmm. And according to the Geneva Convention, that's not allowed, but the, the Japanese army didn't adhere to that. And that's the running plot thread through the film of the the hold that Yunai has over the camp that he's pushing for this. And as a result, he's threatening to replace Hicksley with someone who is more amenable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why he wants Celius. Because oh, okay. he sees so much of himself in Celia's mm-hmm. that he thinks that he'll be much more prepared to mm. cooperate. Yeah, I think he got it wrong on that one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think, I mean, Hicksley was not the right person either, that's for sure. Um, that that guy... Hicksley, he just says, nope, not doing it. Whereas Lawrence, in the middle, would... He also wouldn't do it, but he would try and just smooth things over... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not looking for a confrontation, definitely. No, he's, he's, he's just trying to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Celia's is... And defend his his soldiers. Yeah, and, and, uh, yeah, and uh, look look after the welfare of the others. Celia's, I think, is a bit more selfish in a way. He's focused on his own interests. He doesn't do anything to endanger anyone else unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. But he's planning to escape at one point. Yeah. And... That's only going to be bad for the people left behind. Well, you know when they said the first, when they mentioned in his trial the first time he arrived in Indonesia, he was with four men, but these four men were killed in action, and suddenly he's the only survivor. And then when you see the escape thing, 
the escape scene that made me thought about that first mention and I'm thinking did those men really die or did he just leave them behind and doesn't know what happened to them or I think in the book it's fairly clear that they, they okay. died um, and that it, it wasn't Celia's fault in any way mm-hmm. but it's just collateral damage to him I mm. think okay but it's a war I guess yeah. you know even though you were sent as a search party or as a party to kind of figure out it where was, to go it and was, where to land best. It was to train um, local uh, resistance forces to act as uh, guerrilla soldiers. Ah, uh, okay. Um, which is why there's a whole thing about, you know, why didn't you surrender when the forces in the area said, yeah. well, because I answer to the general in India. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise he would have been a spy. Okay. Which would have been really bad. <laughs> if you think what happened to regular soldiers is bad, mm. what happened to spies was much worse. Okay. I, yeah, no, I don't want to imagine that either. I, f- I feel like Sidious is... I can see the selfish po- point and uh, his selfish side, but also the scene where, despite orders, he starts distributing food and makes a joke of the, the flour oh, yes. that is used to make the cake... And um, I thought that was very clever of him, but dangerous for the soldiers. But I'm thinking, you're making a point here of defending your soldiers and saying to the Japanese, we are not going to abide by your requirements. Mm. Um, so there's a dual side of him. And sometimes you're thinking he's had enough, he just wants to bugger off. Yeah. But on the other hand, he feels responsible for these guys and their welfare. I think there's... It's bound up, I think, as well in uh, defying their authority. Okay. Um, and if you're going to do that by siding and ex- explicitly helping the prisoners, then fine, because it wouldn't do any harm to get everyone on his side. Mm. But the fact that he can just laugh in the face of his captors while they get all frustrated, mm. that's what he wants to do. It's, it's kicking against authority, I think, that's something that really motivates him, because it goes back to what happened to his yes. brother, the whole keystone of his character. Yeah, definitely. That um, his brother was... Um, the, book, the book makes it really... It goes into a lot of length, a lot of uh, description. That he is... Lawrence even describes him as being beautiful. Okay, he's a cute little boy. Well, even as an adult. Oh, okay. Lawrence says that he's, he's the only man he would ever describe as beautiful. That okay. He's incredibly good-looking and very charismatic. But he had a younger brother who had dark hair and was, I'm sure there's a nicer way of putting it than hunchbacked, but um, he had a physical deformity in his back. Mm-hmm. And they went to boarding school and Celia's was a prefect, he was in the sports teams, yeah. he was well liked by everyone. And his younger brother was going to be joining. And there is a hazing ritual on the new boy's first day. And the brother was very worried about this. And so they said, no, don't worry, it's fine. It'll be okay. And there's a meeting of the prefects on that first day where they say, they go through a list of any of the, mm. the boys who they could accept. Well, he's, well, he's got a heart condition and he, he's been very ill recently. Celius, that, that brother of yours, um, do you want him to be put on this list as well? And uh, we'll just... Uh, We'll just wave him through. No, no, it's fine. You can, you can carry on. I thought him. that was so cruel of him to do that. I think I can understand why he would have done it. 
No. <laughs> I, I'd ne- not that I would agree with it. Okay. But the the process of character building, of just trying to sort of toughen him up a bit, because he's a very soft, quiet, sensitive soul, the brother. Yeah, and, he, and he sings. He has this beautiful singing I know. voice. Yeah, that was good. I like that part. And the only part I like in that yeah. British best. <laughs> and Salia's nose near this. This isn't going to cut it. He's 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 too soft. Mm. He needs to be toughened up. And he winds up being completely humiliated in this ritual, and and he never sings again. That's so cruel. Yeah. When he says that, I went um, to um, to Lawrence on their last night together in the cell. That is just so cruel to hear it. He never sang again. Mm. It's basically cutting somebody's personality or cutting somebody's gift and. It's just really hard. And I, when when he said, no, no, that's fine, carry on with the initiation. No, please stop it before it's too late. Yeah. And I, I I, I think it's interesting that the prefects even gave him an out. He says, no, we can, we can put your brother on here and then it's fine. Because, you know, he's the you know, younger brother of the head of school, so mm. you know, privileges and all that. We find out what happens to the brother. I, th- I think it's only in the book. He um, went back to the... The, the family estate and he took it over and he became a farmer I think he mentions that in the film as well like, when he says he, he saw his brother uh, at his marriage the, the, that was the last time he saw him yeah, at his wedding married. but um, not not um, Jack's wedding but his brother's but wedding the brother's yeah. wedding and the book uh, Lawrence describes in the book in fact that he went to visit the brother again after the war and found out that he died and he discovers that he died the same day that Celia's died. <gasps> ah, that's interesting. Would that be true? Because you you said that the the oh no that's made up. Oh, okay, <laughs> you said the author of the book is actually I, based on you know some of his life. I was like, oh. Well, it's it's about life in the prisoner of war camp, okay. but the specific characters are fictitious. Mm, I think. Okay. I think there's. I think Lawrence has an element of himself mm-hmm. because Lawrence is quite a neutral character. Particularly in the book, he doesn't do very much. He's kind of just the person who explains the story to the narrator. Okay. Um, but that that element is certainly fictitious. But I I like that as kind of yeah. They're the 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 two halves as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is is the the handsome, charismatic. Person, I mean, everything he does just comes easily to him. He winds up working as a lawyer before the war, yeah, and then joins up the day war breaks out, and that's the same as when Hara left for the army. That was the day they died. It was just that their bodies kept working, Mm -hmm. and they were already prepared for death. But it's but and then the brother is the the soulful side. He's Mm -hmm. the he's kind of the part of Celia's that's missing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's interesting that relationship, definitely. Um, it's just the way it's filmed. I just didn't like it. <laughs> I think it's there is a certain I mean because a lot of it's portrayed as kind of fantasy as well because you yeah. have David Bowie playing a teenage boy and no attempt to make it look realistic. Oh, completely. Which is fine, I think, because it's kind of. It's, it's like him it's, reminiscing. It's, it's, yeah, so he's remembering mm. it as he is now. But also because all that was filmed in New Zealand, so that the, country, the English country garden is like filmed in Auckland. <laughs> so the plants look odd because none of those plants grow in the UK. 
I, it felt like cotton wool to me. It felt like there was a filter on top of it to make it blurry and. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that's again that's just a mm. deliberate effect. Yeah. To make it seem distant and idealized because it's so incredibly beautiful. Yeah, it's very lush. Colorful flowers. Yeah. It looks fantastic, and it feels like an idealized memory mm-hmm. of what their house was like. Yeah. And in the book, they just lived out in the in the veldt in South Africa, and it sounds like it was basically desert. <laughs> Quite different. Yeah, but if it's you know, quite full. <laughs> it's much harder to film out there. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Actually, no, I made a mistake earlier. The film wasn't made shot in Indonesia at all. It was filmed in the Cook Islands. Where is that? That is far out in the Pacific. Okay. It's, it's technically New Zealand territory. Okay. Um, but it's it's of the the main island. Where it was filmed is, I think, about three miles across. It's very, very small. Okay. It's it looked very jungle-like. Yeah. Well, it's had all the plants that would have grown just crammed onto one island, so it's very, very <laughs> dense. Um, what did you think of the sort of the colonial attitudes in the film? Because certainly the the attitudes between the Japanese and British, particularly between Yonoi and Hicksley, really does feel like a relic of colonial times that were just dying out. Hicksley particularly, yeah, you could see he was standing for something that was not, or definitely nowadays, it's not valid anymore. In 1942, um, maybe some people were still thinking like that. Nowadays, I'm not too sure that British commanders would have that attitude. Um, Not nowadays, no, but I mean, 1942, you know, we still owned India. Still had, yeah, there was still an empire, yeah. that's for sure. Um, but same it, for France, they, they were still an empire in some sort of ways. But, but both of them were fading. I mean, we'd lose India in five years. Hmm. Algeria would in the 60s, it would yeah. go lo- not long after that. Um, and then we'd, so we'd lose, Britain would lose control of all, all its possessions in Africa over the next 15 years. But I, I think the colonial attitude is only reflected in Hicksley. I didn't see it as important as, you know, uh, um, Lawrence, for example, because of his attitude of tr- always trying to find compromise and standing up for the good of his soldiers. Yeah. He's, he's completely different. He, he seems to have an open mindset and, and realises that the, there are cultural differences and they're just differences. It doesn't... You don't put a hierarchy in those no. differences. It's just the way it is, and he accepts it that way. So he's got a more modern mindset. Do you think it's because he's travelled more? Well, I think that as... Even Hicksley, I think, as a commander, would have travelled quite a lot, don't you think? I don't know. Not necessarily. Okay. I don't know, maybe also speaking the language, you access something that um, you might not have access... Like Hicksley, for example. We only mention... um, well, it's kind of hinted at that he only speaks English, whereas um, Lawrence not only speaks um, Japanese, but he, he mentions a list of languages as well. So I think the fact that you're commending a language in a country where you're prisoners, you know, you access something that others can't access. The idea that um, a culture can only be truly expressed in its own language... There is something like that in a way, yeah, I think. As a French woman living in the UK, do you find that in any way? That there are elements of British culture that don't translate into the French language? Yeah, completely. And there's still loads of things that 
I don't know about. You know, you were talking about the song, for example. Yeah. Um, for me, they were just lyrics. I don't know the. I I didn't know the cultural aspects behind, for right. example. So, even though you understand, there's still so, there's still some gap. It helps me access it, but it's not. I haven't grasped it fully. Right. And equally, I'm thinking, how would you, you know, translate that? There are there are things that you just can't translate. Hmm. I think. But it's what makes it a richer world, definitely. Yeah. And make it more interesting as well. Otherwise, you're a bit stuck in your own little bubble. Yes. <laughs> if only there was some sort of European organisation that we could be a member of. <laughs> hey, you're still a member of it. <laughs> oh, well. But geographically, you're not going to go far away. You'll still be within, um, within Europe on the map. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> a radio is found. Oh, yeah. Um... And um, Lawrence is told that uh, he is going to be killed for the possession of the radio mm-hmm. within the camp, even though he says he know nothing, knew nothing about it, and we're never given any indication that he's lying, because possessing a radio meant death. I mean, mm-hmm. basically anything, any breaking of the rule meant death. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a weapon, in a way. Yeah. Um, but he notes that even though he isn't guilty, and I think that Hara and Yonoi know that he isn't guilty, mm-hmm. someone has to be punished for it. Yes. There has to be a, a culprit. Yeah. No matter what. And even if they know that he's not the culprit, they need to find someone. Um, I'm surprised that they chose Celia's as the culprit. Well, it means then that you and I can be seen not to be playing favourites, perhaps. Oh, but that, and then, that's twisted. And then show that his uh, magnanimity by letting Celia's go. Except, <laughs> on Christmas Eve, Hara gets pissed. <laughs> I love that scene. And decides that he's going to be Father Christmas. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I really love that scene. But funny in a, in a good way, not in a... Um, I don't like it. <laughs> um, uh, what did you think? Did a, you did you genuinely laugh as well? I didn't. Was... I didn't laugh, but okay. I found it interesting because Hara's is trying to do a good thing. I mean, to begin with, he's just about grasped the concept of Father Christmas, mm-hmm. which I think must be a very alien idea yeah. to Imperial Japan. And he's saying, "Oh, I'm I'm Father Christmas. I'm Father Christmas." <laughs> he loves that idea. And Celia's and Lawrence's looking at each other, both, you know, beaten, yeah. exhausted, on the verge, on, of... on the verge of, on the verge of collapse, and they're yeah. looking at each other and thinking, "Oh God, what next? <laughs> like, what's he talking about now?" <laughs> and um, the the there is there is a discomfort in the scene because suddenly Hara's who is this brutal, sometimes a brutal thug, mm-hmm. sometimes a very conversational and thoughtful man is now smashed out of his skull on Saki <laughs> talking about being Father Christmas and they have no idea what's going to happen and they're just sort of smiling and nodding and going along with it so, yeah, okay, yeah, they're trying okay, to push him in the okay. happy direction Yeah, so, okay. because as you can say, things can you know, turn around so quickly yeah. uh, especially with the drunken guy like him yeah. Uh, you never know, you know, someone what's unpredict- going to be your fate in an, hour, in an hour's time. You don't want to push someone who's unpredictable mm. when they're also drunk and likely to kill you. Mm. So they're, yeah, they're really getting along with it. And 
But I really liked that scene. I thought it was like, I can't believe... It, it felt like the characters could not believe that their fate was going to hang on somebody being drunk, faking to be Father Christmas. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> but Hara says that his, he, as he's Father Christmas, his present is, is going to be that he'll let them go. And he just releases them out into the camp. And he, he, he also stood by his decision the next day when he was sober and explained it to his superior, which I thought was great. Well, he couldn't really go back on it, though, I imagine. Well, he could have done Harakiri, I'm sorry, it's me. <laughs> well, to, to contradict himself like that would be to lose face, which would be a terrible thing. Mm. Um, so to simply, I think, ac- accept, yes, I did it. I, I stand by that decision. And then accept whatever punishment comes his way. Mm. Which would be, I don't think, that severe for him. It's certainly not as bad as anything that would happen to the prisoners. Mm. Um, he's, he's, he has to go in exile. That's, that's the result, right, yes. in a way. Um, but it leads to the climax of the film. It seems to got to the end of the movie quite quickly. <laughs> oh, coming back to that radio, you know when, um, when, you, when you're thinking about the fact that they, didn't, they must have a guilty person... Um, no matter what and he, they both know Sergeant Hara and, and Yonoi both know that the prisoners are probably not the guilty ones it made me think of that Japanese culture and we, we talked about it during the book club when we, when we read that, um, that Japanese thriller about the fact that no matter um, the, the results of the police detect, and, and the detectives in Japan were really high and positive and they always found a culprit because they could only um, prosecute someone if they knew that they were guilty. Um, and I'm thinking here in that film you see the same, the same thing. The fact that no, we can't lose face. We're gonna, we, we decided that you are going to be guilty. If it's true or not, it's completely irrelevant. And I thought that that cultural aspect was a real clash between Japanese culture and, and British culture. Um, and they couldn't accept it. They just couldn't. The British, the British guys couldn't accept it. For them, it was so absurd, uh, but so normal for Yonoi. So I quite like that part, when they're actually so astonished that that Sally is found guilty, mm-hmm. even if it's not true. I like that part. Even though when they say, oh, look, I found a radio, and it turns out to be a water bottle, I was a bit disappointed. Lawrence describes Japan as a nation of anxious people with no individual agency who went mad en masse. Yeah, I quite like that quote. That's a good one. Mm. Going mad en masse. <laughs> but it's, it feels so true when you, when you think about the pressure pushed on the guys, to, on some of the soldiers and some of the guards to, to commit suicide. Yeah. Um, but going mad en masse, I don't know. To um, embrace this kind of death cult, mm. to um, to be willing to die rather than admit to being wrong. Mm, completely. But Hara, well, it goes in the same direction actually. When Hara decides uh, decides to confess to Yonoi that he was drunk when he w- when he released the soldier, as you said, he couldn't he couldn't have said otherwise. He can't, they can't lie, can they? No. 
Because, I mean, if, if for no other reason, there were other guards there who could contradict him. Mm. Yeah, they can't lie. <laughs> but I think that would be... The, the worst crime would be to... Um, to lie and to try and cover up one's mistake, because that would be a sign of cowardice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Yonoi, uh, uh, Hara at least, owns up and owns his mistake. Mm-hmm and says that he's prepared to accept any punishment. And I, I honestly don't think it would be that bad. As you say, he's exiled Yeah, for Yeah, with a, with a bunch of uh, prisoners. Oh, oh, yes, to build the airstrip. Yeah. Which is, well, yeah, it's, it's hard work, but it's probably worse for the prisoners. Mm. <laughs> he just has to supervise them. Yeah, he has to supervise them in sort of not a very nice environment. <laughs> so it's a slap on the wrist for yeah. him, really. And it's pushing away the problem. It's not actually dealing with it. You know, he has enough to deal with already, I think. Yeah. <laughs> In the documentary, um, Sakamoto, is that right? The yeah. musician? Yeah. Sakamoto talks about um, uh, the way he imagined the music, and he was instructed to write the music as being from Yonoi's point of view. Okay. So it's Yonoi's. Um, Perspective is whether is what the how the music is supposed to sound, because there are the two main themes. Mm-hmm. There's the there's the overall theme for the film, and there's the, the kind of the tension theme that you get towards the end, particularly when, um, with the with the kiss of death mm-hmm. sequence. And I think that's sort of, it. It shows the two sides of Yonoi. There's one which is the control, sort of the serene calm, yeah. and the other which is when things arise that he is incapable of processing. Mm-hmm. But I, he's he's the commander, so he does whatever he wants. So even if it seems that he's not processing anything, it doesn't matter. There's still this fury coming out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got the, the, the score, the, 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 main, the main theme, I thought was almost childlike, in a way. Right. Um, not like a nursery rhyme, but very... Simple. Yeah. Um, and I, for me, it doesn't reflect your noise at all. I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't quite match oh. like the character. I didn't know about that. <laughs> no, neither did I. I thought it was uh, very interesting. I mean, it is very Japanese-like, so you could, yeah. but you could have... Because the film ends on that close-up of Hara saying... Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Yeah. Um, Say the title, win a prize. <laughs> um, and he, he's he got that really round, happy face. Yeah. And for me, that's the theme. For, you know, that theme would fit more with Hara. Um, not necessarily Hara as a character, but it's, not that particular scene. Hara develops, I think, very interestingly over the course of the film. The, the, the final sequence is set... I think these were a few months after the end of the war, where um, Hara has been convicted of war crimes mm-hmm. and is to be executed. And he sends a message to Lawrence that he that he wants to see him. And Lawrence races to get there and manages to get there up, I think it's after midnight, mm-hmm. um, on the night before he's due to be um, hanged. And they just talk for a few minutes yeah. in his cell. And Hara has learned English and slightly shaky English but he's totally at peace 
Yeah. He's totally He's calm. not asking anything from from Lawrence at all. No, he just wanted to get a chance to mm-hmm. talk to him again yeah. and say goodbye. And Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. In the, <laughs> I got the impression, I think, when I first saw the film, that that is supposed to be set at Christmas. Okay. That final scene, but it, there's no indication that it is. No. Um, Completely it, at peace, you're right. No, yeah. it holds no grudge. He knows it's the end for him, and that's the rule of the games, in a way, when you're at war. Yes. That anything can happen to you, and you can be taken, and, and that could be the end at any moment. But he does say that um, he doesn't really understand why he's being executed, he specifically, because he doesn't see any difference between what the two sides in the war did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was a soldier. I was doing as I, as I was commanded, as I believed was right, as a soldier. And there's nothing I can do about it now, but I don't understand what the difference is and Lawrence says well war is a game played by politicians Mm. effectively oh yeah they're just um, they're just pawns in the game right exactly which (laughs) it's not a game obviously no but that's also a direct quote from an episode of Doctor Who oh sorry (laughs) hey (laughs) who would have known I know it's your favourite show Um, (laughs) no that's uh, there is there is a story about the Second World War where it's um, War is a game played by politicians, but now the pawns are facing each other and seeing that there is no difference between them. Mm. But it's true, they are. But I think if you were a soldier, you have to accept that somebody above you, a politician or or somebody else, is going to give you orders, and that you don't. They're not going to ask you if you agree or not. No. Otherwise, it's it's chaos, right? <laughs> but the end point of that kind of situation would be a nation going mad en masse <laughs> yeah. and just accepting what they are told mm-hmm. and doing what they are told without considering any of the consequences or the, right, the rights or wrongs. It depends who's at the top exactly. and who manages to move the mass. <laughs> so Imperial Japan, it could be argued, I think, therefore, was a nation that could exist only for war. It couldn't exist as a peaceful nation. Yeah, maybe you're right. At that time, probably they didn't see themselves as something else. No. I mean, that I don't know what it is like today, what, what type of politicians are at the top, and what's the state of their army. I really don't know. Um, my understanding is that militaristically, Japan is quite pared back. Okay. Um, the government is centre-right, Mm-hmm. But it's more concerned with economic strength. Okay. Um, Rather than social changes. And no, I mean, Japan seems to be. I mean, I think I mentioned on the podcast before. I think of Japan as being an alien planet. Okay. Because it's so different in cultural terms. Mm-hmm. It's hard to reconcile it with the way of life that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. That that these two things coexist in the same planet. So I think, oh yeah, it's, it's just another planet. It's different. It's very, very different. And it's also really far away. Yeah. But you have to kind of think, okay, that's how they do that there. And I don't necessarily agree with a lot of it, but there's not much I can do about mm. it. Yeah, you're right. Have you been to Japan? No, I haven't. No, neither have I. 
It's too far, it's too expensive. <laughs> I haven't got the means to travel there, afraid. I would like to visit, and um, my understanding is that it's a, it's a lovely place to visit, and people there are extremely friendly and extremely happy to receive visitors. I mean, it's not any kind of sort of uh, mean-minded... No, but I think people are not really, really... They don't open their homes very easily, apparently. No. So even if they're happy to see visitors... Well, I mean, so just in general, out in the streets, mm-hmm. going, you know, visiting public places, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I have been to Austria a number of times, mm-hmm. which is a very right-wing country. Yeah. And they're happy to tolerate visitors, but they stop short of making you feel too welcome. Okay. In general. And you have the right skin colour for them. So can you imagine, if you were coming from another part of the world, how welcome... You'd be. I think it would also depend on which part of the country. Because I was in the, the skiing and rural areas, mm-hmm. if I was visiting Vienna or Salzburg or one of the more metropolitan places, I, I expect that they might be a little more open-minded, perhaps. I don't want to tar all Austrians with the same brush, obviously, no. because I have some very good friends who are Austrian. But it's the same all over the world. People who live in the more rural areas only ever see the types of people who look like them. Mm-hmm. And they are suspicious of people who are different. Yeah. And I think, as anyone is, we're, we we see something that's different from ourselves. And because it's different, it strikes us as threatening. But there's a difference between first reaction and your brain being able to reason yourself that this is not a threat. But that, and that's a matter of education, mm. I think. No, and and not, 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 uh, not schooling, but just getting used to people who are different. Yeah, and not minding it. <laughs> like, I, 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 like to, I like to think of when my mother met her first gay man. Um, she went back to university in middle age. She qualified as a teacher and started uh-huh. teaching in her mid-50s. And the head of IT at the school was gay. And he was openly gay. And he wasn't, you know, feather boas and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, he was the first gay man that she had any kind of interaction with. And her response was, well, he's just, he's just like a normal man. Apart from, yeah. that, apart, from that, <laughs> apart from that thing, which doesn't really matter because it's a school. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. Yeah. I wonder if that film, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, was well received in Japan, not, not for the portrayal of their, of their soldiers, but because of the homosexual aspect which, which was clearly displayed. Well, I think... Um, my understanding is that it's physical explicitness mm-hmm. that's more of a taboo. Okay. So the, the thematic material, they probably would have been fine with. I mean, the, the previous film, In the Realm of the Senses, is very explicit, mm-hmm. physically and emotionally. And that got passed through without any problems. Okay. So I imagine this film would probably not have been really very controversial. Okay. Because for the, for the, the material. Mm-hmm. I think maybe... Perhaps because because of what it is, because it's a Japanese film about this presumably quite contentious period in Japanese yeah. history, and being ambivalent about rights and wrongs, and why these things happen, that might have been a bit more controversial. I don't recall any kind of concern about it in the UK, where mm. it is still, even today, where you know World War Two veterans are in their nineties. The way that British soldiers were treated by, uh, as Japanese prisoners of war is still a sore point. 
Yeah. And it's a reason why a lot of people don't like Japan. Oh, wow. Same reason a lot of people don't like Germany. You can't hold the grudge forever, right? At some point, you've got to. I mean, obviously, from my point of view, it's difficult. It's easier to say I'm just sitting in my couch and I never went to war. But of course, I, th I think you. At some point, you have to look towards the future, and of course, some people are responsible. But if if you want to move forward, you have to accept that one generation is not responsible for the previous generation's deeds. No, um, no, I quite agree. Otherwise, you're just stuck in the past, right? Exactly. It's, it's I think, a responsibility that we have to ensure that our own cultures don't fall back into these sorts of terrible actions mm. and atrocities. Yeah. Which I think might be quite an appropriate sentiment for the centenary of Armistice Day. Yeah, definitely. I was hoping to wear a white poppy this year. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, they're actually quite difficult to get hold of. There's only two places in London that sell them. Only two? Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, you can buy them online, but you can only buy them in bags just of 50 or something like <laughs> well, that. Well, you could be the third point of resale. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But... Um, I, I, wonder, I wonder if um, the Japan Japanese culture has anything like that to celebrate their soldiers, like a day in the year. Where, because in France, it's not Remembrance Sunday, it's actually Armistice Day. So it's just about First World War. I Whereas see. here, it's more encompassing British conflicts and um, what soldiers, regardless of the conflicts, went through. So I'm, I'm wondering if in Japan they have something similar, if they, if they look um, at their past and, and you know, honour the soldiers. A day to remember the, mm -hmm. the deaths of soldiers in battle. I imagine there probably is... Um, It seems that every nation has something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I know even even Germany, as far as I remember, uh, commemorates Armistice Day. Okay. Uh, I say even Germany. Um, no, but, but it's true but, if but, you're but, the loser but side. But <laughs> yeah, but um, and particularly the Second World War when mm. it's such a, a a black mark. Yeah. Um, but you know, millions of men died, and you can't pretend that didn't happen, regardless yeah. of the circumstances at the time. Um, that scene talking about some some, pre, some some soldiers dying that scene in the film where towards the end Yonoi is asking for all the ill men to come out of the hospital compound on that field and there's this really thin soldier who's dying in front of him and he just collapses and dies yeah. I found that really shocking I just thought it It's probably as worse as as bad as the Harakiri scene. It's very. I imagine that's lifted straight from that yeah. experience. You, I, I'm sure, because you can see how harrowing that is, and how um, it it really felt true. Um, yeah. It was for me. It was really distressing. I know it happened. I mean, it's war, and things are you know terrible, th horrible things happen for no reason. But the fact that you're making somebody prisoners that you have that hospital compound for them and treat them like shit to the point of their death yeah it's just awful it's awful yeah. i just that scene made me feel really yeah i didn't like it <laughs> at all well i'm sorry if, if i upset you I no, no, no. Upset you. <laughs> no 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 um, no it's it's part of the film you know i i i think it's important that we remember that things like that almost certainly did happen yeah um And that, I mean, 
I've just, I think I've read Ward described as just a failure to communicate, <laughs> and it's just the consequences of people failing to talk to each other. <laughs> but it, it, the film is a good argument for people being able to talk, mm-hmm. because because Yanoi is so wrapped up in his fantasy of yeah. um, being a modern samurai, he's incapable of articulating how he feels. At some point, somebody says, "Stop think, stop um, thinking about your superstitions, or stop being so superstitious." Yeah. Uh, but you're right. He's in his bubble, right? Yeah. I get. I, I get the impression he's from a a very uh, uh, prestigious family. Yes. And that he's maybe the second son. Ah. The first son. The first <laughs> son is probably the, um, the golden boy, and he's the one living in the son's shadow. <laughs> So he's, he's got, got some issues. So he's the little brother. Oh, yeah. Um, Good one. <laughs> I, I, I do this sort of thing without even thinking about it. Um, because that would explain that, that, that focus he has. Hmm. Um, that it's, it's a put on. That he feels he has to act like this rather than it being something that comes naturally to him. Hmm. The way it does with Celia's. So he looks at Celia's and says, this is, this is what I want to be. Mm-hmm. Except... He's a Westerner. He's got an evil spirit as well. Yes. He thinks of him as an evil spirit. I like that. Sent to torment him. Mm. I thought that was good. I like that That bit of sur- surreal. Mm. It's a prisoner of war camp, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's, have you ever seen The Bridge on the River Kwai? No. I, or maybe I was really young, but it's the type of film that probably was broadcast once a year in France. And I never managed to watch the end. <laughs> oh, it's a French author. Um, because that's kind of the, the most famous and most popular mm-hmm. film about Japanese prisoners of war. And it's, I find it interesting to contrast the two because that's very much a 1950s story where the Japanese are, for the most part, bad. Okay. And the, and the British are either good or just deluded. Okay. <laughs> because the uh, the commander of the the British forces is very much a Major Hicksley. Okay. Um, and he <laughs> he helps the Japanese build this bridge because he says yes, get the, get the the prisoners to uh, to do this project. That'll be good for their morale. Um, it's, it's better. It's better than just than you know than sitting mo- around. Sitting around, they get to do something. They get to be productive and they get to achieve something. Oh, great! But they're also effectively assisting the enemy. Yeah. And they're doing it under pain of death, so it's not as if they would be um, culpable mm-hmm. in any kind of court. But the way it develops at the end with um, the commanding officer realising what he's done, realising that he's effectively been a collaborator. Mm-hmm. I guess that's really hard. Yeah. As, as a soldier, that's, that's the end of your career. And, it's, and, it's, and he, he's shot and he dies. And he sets off the detonator to blow up the bridge as part of a this mm. spy, this American spy to blow it up. And it's left ambiguous over whether or not he did it deliberately. Okay. Whether or not he fell on the detonator or deliberately meant to uh, set it off. Yeah, do you think they're going to do that with the airstrip? <laughs> well, I think the inference is that the airstrip's never going to get finished. Mm. Because it's all... Oh! Because it's, 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 it's getting later in the war now. Because it's all, the film starts in 1942... And it ends at Christmas, the but war part, so it'll be 43, and it's going to take a while to get that airstrip built. Okay. And they're going to get through quite a lot of prisoners, because it's hard work, and they're not yeah. feeding them enough. 
So I would be surprised if that airstrip gets finished. And certainly the Japanese, I think, were pushed out of uh, Java and the Indonesian islands relatively early. Okay. Because uh, it's quite a long way out. Yeah, it is. They're quite isolated in that part of the world anyway. Well, they're close to Singapore because it's it's kind of that that kind of archipelago. Yeah, it's quite from, long. From, you're right. From, yeah, from Southeast Asia and Singapore down to Australia. I think I only realised in the last few years that Australia had air raids. Of course, they did from, oh, yeah. from Japanese planes in the like Darwin yeah. in the north. Yeah, I never thought of that either. No, never really occurs to you. But yeah, but I think yes, if, as Japan was forced to. They tended not to retreat. They would just kind of carry on fighting until they were all dead. Yeah. Which is obviously not a great way to win a war. <laughs> no surrender, remember? No, but uh, <laughs> as, as General Patton said, you don't win wars by dying. You win wars by making sure the other person dies. First. We'll always be back. I think I was watching a documentary earlier on today about uh, the, the armistice and how it was signed. And um, the person who signed... I can't remember his name... Erzberg, Erzberger, yeah. the the German who signed the armistice um, on behalf of the German, um, he did say to uh, General Foch and to the the British, um, I can't remember the other names of the British guy either. Haig. Um, something it starts with an H. Might have been Haig. Anyway. And he do, he does say Germany will still be there, and you. Even after you know signing the armistice and surrendering the army, surrendering the submarines, um, surrendering the Alsace and the Lorraine, and still saying, "We'll be there." So you're right in the sense that it's not necessarily killing yourself; it's making sure that you're still going to be there to kill the other guy in the end. Yeah. But I, I think the context there is important. Did he say it as a threat or no, as, I... a, as a hope that Germany itself would survive? I think so. Uh, it's probably. Germ- I'm, I'm not too sure it was a threat and also he was seen in Germany as a traitor in a way because he's the one who signed the armistice <laughs> there's bound to be a guy to do it so yeah. they sent him <laughs> um, I'm not too sure he was in a position to threat anyone just because well no but just to so that he could leave with a bit of dignity and I think leave, leave, so, a, few, leave yeah. a few strong words I think there were words but of course it's, your ego is, is exactly you know, yeah is damaged, right, after you've signed this, probably. We would have won the war, too, if it hadn't been for you meddling France and Britain. <laughs> there are some... Uh, I've been thinking also about um, the documentaries about the war. There was a very fine uh, documentary series in the 60s called The Great War, which interviewed many veterans and survivors of the First World War, and the series The World at War. Mm-hmm. Have you, you've heard no, of I haven't, that? no. It was a 26-part documentary about the Second World War. Okay. Made in the early seventies, really and, early. Yeah, and they managed to interview a lot of veterans, a lot of witnesses, and a lot of people who you thought should that person be executed by now, like um, uh, Albert Speer and uh, Dönitz. <laughs> Things. Hmm. I hadn't managed to Hitler, Hitler's successor. Shouldn't he be in jail? Yeah, he had been in jail. He'd done twenty years. Twenty years. And Speer was I think in jail in German jails. Yeah. And uh, Albert Speer, the only surviving member of Hitler's high command, and the only one who didn't die at the end of the war, <laughs> because he, they could present no evidence that he knew about the Holocaust. So he got 20 years in prison instead. And after that, he was a free man. So he was interviewed in this, do- in this documentary. Gosh. 
That's harsh. It's like it's a massive step in the face. History is written by the victors, and I think, in the name of accuracy, it's only fair if the other side is given a chance to speak. And Speer was Minister of Munitions, and he was Hitler's chief architect. And as I say, there was no evidence that he knew what was happening. I doubt that. Well, <laughs> but even so, I think it's it's right and it's reasonable that they're given an opportunity to speak and to tell their side of what happened and their own experiences because they have unique experiences that no one else can talk about as well. There was one of the uh, secretaries from the bunker, mm. even Tyler Younger, who was one of Hitler's personal secretaries, and she's interviewed at length. Because she was the only person left alive who was in Hitler's a bunker. Wit- a, wi- a witness. To, yeah. Yeah. She was, she to was, the end. She found his body. I oh think. wow! Okay. So yeah, you want to get that person's yeah. recollections on yeah. tape. 1970s is really really early to talk about Second World War. I think it's quite daring, isn't it? Twenty five years after the end of the war, even so. Mm. But it was it was a it was a big project. The World War. I think okay. they've been working on it for about five years. Okay. Um, and it's repeated quite a bit on satellite channels it's mm. worth seeing if you get the chance we were shown an episode of it at school um, the ep- they did an episode that was just about the holocaust okay which was broadcast without commercials originally and we were told that um, if we wanted to leave the room at any point we could okay because some of the footage in it which was filmed at Auschwitz and mm. places like that of operations Oh, not not oh. operations as in medical operations, oh, but okay. Um, I thought you were about to say no, 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 medical no. operations. No, 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 not not not. not <laughs> okay. they, they have, I don't think they would bother, bother filming anything like that. But day to day operations of well, may as well be blunt, bulldozing bodies into mm-hmm. mass graves. Uh, it's like um, I don't know the name in English of the film Nu et Brouillard. Have you seen that one? It's a black and white film by René. What's the title? In, what are the words in English? Night and Fog. Oh, yeah, it's Night and Fog. Oh, right. Okay, cool. I didn't know. That one is... is um, it's the same. I watched it in when I was in high school. Mm. Um, and it's because it's... It's supposed to be a, a film, but you know it's not fiction. And, com- and I mean, obviously, Merry Christmas and Dolores is completely different, but... Um, it, there's a story in Merry Christmas with Stolen It's the beginning, there's an end, there's a development, there are characters, yes. are conflicts. And when you see something like Nuit Brouillard, it's just so different. It, it, it is so real and so blunt and so shocking. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I remember that one vividly. Mm. Some of the pictures are still there. Yes, I know what you mean. But going back to the film... Um, I think it's a very interesting study of the way men come into conflict against each other and really against themselves. Ultimately, Yanoi is fighting himself. Yeah, you're right. In in the sense that he finds his um, other other self in in Cilius. Yeah, definitely. And the the final sequence where in that parade, and and if the armourers don't come forward, everyone in the camp will be killed. Celia's breaks ranks, steps forward, and kisses Yonoi mm. on both cheeks. And Yonoi starts to pull his sword to respond, but just blacks out mm-hmm. from 
sheer emotional the intensity yeah because the the insult to his honor and (laughs) the fulfillment perhaps of a secret wish of his they're so powerful and they're so conflicting that his brain just shuts down i think he's ashamed isn't he yeah it's it's the loss of face Mm -hmm. and um, and it's the fact that he presents he wants to present this strength the fact that he can command the ill men to come forward and to die in front of him. And then this guy comes and kisses him. And it's sh- like an offer of peace, right? Exactly. And he, it was just the last thing that he was probably thought would happen. But it seemed so natural for me, in a way, that, that scene. It didn't seem that so surprising. I don't know. That, from whose point of view would you, would you see it? From Celia's or from your noise? Mm. Does, do you think it seems natural for Celius to do that? I'm not too sure Celius is that predictable. In in the sense that these two characters seem to be one at so many times in the films, or seem to be, you know, both sides of one same character. That that physical um, touch would didn't seem out of place. Um, I'm not too sure Celius planned it. No, it's clearly very spontaneous. But also, it's the thing that finally lets him atone for the betrayal of his brother. Yeah. That he's able to save the lives of all these men, but sacrifice himself Mm. to a slow, lingering death. Mm. Because a square is marked out in the parade ground. Yeah. And a hole is dug in the middle. And Celiaz is put inside, standing up with his hands tied behind his back. And Mm. he's buried up to his neck. And they leave him there. That scene is quite slow. Because you know what's going to happen. I think... I mean, you clearly know what's going to happen when you see his feet going into the ground. Yeah. But still, the director decided to make me watch him being buried little by little. Well, it's... It's really slow. It's so that you're feeling it from the way Sally is Mm. feeling it. That it's a very slow, agonising process. Yeah, I thought it was really clever. And... The night before Celius finally dies, Yunoi comes to see him, and he pulls out a knife, but he just cuts a lock mm-hmm. of his hair. And keeps it. And keeps it, and then turns to stand in front of Celius and salutes him. Mm. As a soldier. As a soldier, and a, a, a display of respect. Mm-hmm. Is there any point in the film where Yanoi salutes any of the British soldiers? I don't think there is. I can't remember. Probably not, actually. Because to, because to him, they are animals. Mm-hmm. They're dogs. But, he's, but he, even at the end, he is prepared to acknowledge respect for Celius. Yeah. If, if nothing beyond that. Secretly in, secretly in love. You know, maybe yeah. maybe he's going to make a potion, a love potion or something. I don't well, I think we're told that he took the lock of hair back to his home village mm-hmm. and he left it in a shrine there. Yeah. Which is a very profound sign of respect and honour. It's quite tortured, though, don't you think? Yeah. It's torturing weight. Or it's he's torturing himself. It's as if he wants to remember that he's killed that rightful man that he admired that he bears that burden of guilt mm. that Celius has passed on to him or maybe he wants to sweeten the evil spirit <laughs> mm. the, 
title of the book is The Sower and the Seed. Yeah. And towards the end, Lawrence describes Sellers as the sower who planted the seed and the others. And I think it's it's passing on because it went from the brother to Sellers to Yonoi mm-hmm. and to Hara because he is able to reconcile in that final scene with yeah. Lawrence. That lock is a peace offering in a way. Yeah. Well, as much as he can offer his hair. Because he's a bit stuck in that sand, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but even though he'd reconciled himself to his death a long time ago, he actually seems at peace. He didn't seem at peace before, but now he's calm, relaxed. All he wants to do at the end was just to talk to Lawrence again, and he gets that chance. Mm. And the film ends with Lawrence leaving the cell, and Hara calls him back, and there's a, as you said, there's a mm. huge close-up of his face where he smiles and says, yeah. Merry Christmas! Yeah. I thought it, it ended well for me, even though you know, you know that that guy is, going, is about to die, because they're so at peace with their death. Yeah. There's a... Um, there's some kind of not hope, but there's some kind of yeah. You feel you feel rested. You feel like everybody's everybody knows where they stand, and there's no bitterness. Yeah. There's no need for revenge anymore. That there's a. As a mutual understanding that's been reached, there's a communication mm. between men that wasn't possible in war. Yeah. But now that they've been able to talk, and literally in the case of Hara, who's learned to speak English, even though Lawrence is a fluent Japanese speaker, they can talk on equal terms and mm-hmm. they can part as friends yeah. despite everything I agree and they know that they can't reverse the decisions that no. have been taken I think it's it's a very moving and, and quite profound film um, I think David Bowie is excellent yeah I agree it he... was it was his personal favourite of all his acting oh, okay. performances okay it's his least showy because he, he he tends not to speak much he's just relying on his his natural charisma and his intensity, but um, he's, I mean, even though of course he plays an important part, I think Mr. Lawrence is the main character. Yes, he's he's certainly the the anchor for the audience mm. because he's, in many ways, he's an everyman. He's a, 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 a kind of a, a normal person in the middle of this story. Yeah, um, and he's there from beginning to end. Exactly. Yeah, and he's the only survivor of the four of them. Yeah, Yonoi. Um, I I can't remember what it said specifically, but Yonoi commits Harry Kiri mm-hmm. at the end of the war rather than surrender. Sellers is dead. Hara is going to be executed. Yeah. We don't know about Hicksley. Hicksley's kind of a nobody. (laughs) He could have have been anybody else's. (laughs) I I, I imagine it's likely that Hicksley survived and walked out of uniform. Oh, no, well, I can imagine, actually, that he was a career soldier. (laughs) He, He carries the air of being a career soldier. Until the end. Whereas Lawrence, I think, was probably an enlisted man. Oh, really? You think yeah. so? Or he, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a career soldier. Okay. Or he was someone who um, volunteered or enlisted because of the war, and then okay. after the war would go back to civilian life. Mm. But Hicksley definitely has that kind of small-minded, typical military mindset mm. yeah, that yeah. I really dislike. Everything must be in, his, in such a precise order. Yeah, there's no room for 
flexibility or, no, or creative or, or compromise, or compromise. And, and diplomatic relationships exactly or communication yeah so I hope you were you found it interesting and I enjoyable. did yeah I did definitely I was surprised I didn't expect that at all from the film um, I, I, I thought it was going to be a war film um, and in some part of course it is but you don't see it uses war as uh, a setting yeah. and uh, a way of exploring ideas rather than being about action and murder yeah and the characters are very interesting there's always a duality there's always um, a, a bit of each of them in the other characters as well no I really liked it apart from that British interlude <laughs> which is actually set in New Zealand isn't it? exactly what a lovely place it is <laughs> and Takeshi I didn't know he was going to be there that was a good surprise. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad I was able to surprise you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looked really young. Well, he once was. Young and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, thank you for choosing that film. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, well, given this episode is coming out at Christmas... Oh, wow. Um, because I always try to have uh, the most unseasonal Christmas episode possible. Last <laughs> year we had a horror movie. Oh, great. What was it? Uh, Black Christmas. <laughs> of course. Um... For those of you listening, listeners, a uh, Merry Christmas to you, and um, I hope you have a very peaceful and uh, communicative season, and uh, what a, a fine time it would be to make peace with those with whom you're in conflict. Well ended. Joy Noel. Frohes <laughs> <laughs> <Force> Weihnachten. <laughs> Thanks to Emmanuel for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes, with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time, what a funny face. Beautiful eyes, though. to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.